Hello all and welcome to our podcast. We are The Kinotomic, a movie podcast that bridges the cinema nostalgia of the golden age of Hollywood with the explosive modernity of contemporary cinema. I am your host, Danny, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Nick. Hello! Thank you for joining us again today for another conversation about some of our favourite films. Give us a follow on Twitter at Kinotomic, send us an email at kinotomic at gmail.com and tell us what your favourite Henri-Georges Cuzot film is. Tonight on the podcast we have 1953's Wages of Fear and 1955's Les Diaboliques. So chronologically, shall we start with The Wages of Fear? Yeah, we're, we're going to go for the, the early film, which was for once my film. Yours, I, yeah. I, 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 I found a film from the early era, well, from the 50s, which Danny hasn't seen. I think um, this was this counts as a Christmas miracle, doesn't it? It does, it does. <laughs> I mean, we, we're, we're recording this, we're about two weeks away from Christmas, so um, I think we should, be running, we should be running through the streets in our dressing gown and, and, and yeah screaming it's christmas i think that's i think i think we've done we've, we've done really well <laughs> um so yeah we were wages of fear uh from 1953 obviously directed by henry george clouseau in keeping with our director december uh trilogy triptych whatever you want to call it um so i've got a brief synopsis when an oil well owned by an american company catches fire the company hires four European men down on their luck to drive two trucks over mountain dirt roads loaded with nitroglycerin needed to extinguish the flames. Uh, the film is set in an unnamed South American country, is somewhere in South America. Um, the film stars uh, Yves Montand. I- I'm just going to butcher these French names, so Danny's probably going to butt in at any the point. The D is silent. Okay, Montand uh, as Very Mario. Good. Uh, Charles uh, Vanel as Joe, Peter Van Eyck as Bimba, William Tubbs as Bill O'Brien, Vera Clouseau as Linda, and Foco Luli as Luigi. Um, so, Danny, what did you think of The Wages of Fear? Okay. Oh. So, I went to the VFR at the weekend to watch, for the first time in months, I'm back in London, so I'm very happy. Yay! So I went to see a very interesting, a very funny documentary about Marlene Dietrich. Um, there's the Dietrich um, season at the BFI currently. So she's at one point in the in the comment in the uh, in interview, she's in, asked about the film she's made, and on some she said, "Oh, how kitsch they were and whatnot." She uses kitsch a lot. Um, but on the ones she says something that I would, I would, I definitely related to after seeing this film. She says something like, "What's there to say about it? What can you say about about like the Sixtine Chapel or a work of Da Vinci or something? How, how, what can you add? You know, it's absolutely amazingly great." So after watching this film, I felt a bit like that. I really, I was blown away i didn't know what to expect i did not expect this i thought it might be something maybe thriller horror noir but not with the suspense level turned to 11 i i don't know i just started because the, it, it it's a slow build, right? So it's it starts off quite slow. You kind of get to meet the people who are about to embark on this 
very perilous journey. So at the beginning, I started being quite analytical about all the accents and I was feeling quite proud of myself that I could I could understand them all, a bit of Italian, Spanish, French. So they, but it struck me that they spoke with such, such strange accents. So I was like, what, who's South American, who's European? I didn't really know, for instance, that Vera Cluzo was actually born in Brazil. So she speaks Spanish with the Portuguese accent, which I, at first I thought it was accent. It was French, sorry. It was just like, what? Anyway, enough about the linguistics. Um, the film is a masterpiece. I squirmed in my seat. I scratched my cheeks in despair. My palms are sweaty. I just pulled my hair. I screamed at the TV. I was... I felt like I was on the on the truck with those guys on those very perilous roads. Oh, it was one of those films that I really felt with all my senses. I was yeah, I had no warning as to what I was about to witness and I felt like, you know, after a couple of times where everything was like the sequences were so tense, I thought, okay, that's it. They're going to find they just they're just going to cut to where they get to the place. So I kept waiting for them to get to the place. I was like, enough tension already, just get to the place. So it was just like, what the hell? Please just have mercy, just finish this journey. So yeah, oh my God. I, you know, it was just, I get, I was a bit triggered a few times. Um, for instance, the opening scenes where you have the dog that pelts the is being pelted with pebbles yeah. i did not understand the, the the cruelty of that scene i just felt very very bad i didn't very uh much like joe um i hated him we until the very end when he kind of sort of redeems himself i didn't really dislike him because he was a coward i just re really disliked him because he was a bully I didn't understand why he was so mean to Luigi, for instance, like, you know, picking on him and just so cocky. There was no reason to do that. And I didn't understand why Mario was so fascinated with him to the point that he would just turn his back on Linda. So, yeah, spoiler alert for those who haven't seen this film. Please just stop listening now. Um, I really felt heartbroken when Luigi and Bimba mm, don't make the trip. Nope. They were very, I, f I felt like they were really good people with no hidden agenda. And Joe had the agenda to, you know, he was a peddler. He was, you know, maybe wanted for some crimes or whatever. Um, Luigi and Bimba, they were just normal people looking for a buck. And they've been you know, struggling and working very hard. And it just it struck me how good, how well played the, it was the, the dynamic between the all the men. It was very, very well portrayed. They just, like, how the hardship and also maybe some, yeah. Is it possible to say there was a bit of homoeroticism in it? Um, I think... I don't know about the homoeroticism angle. I see it more on the lines of your masculinity and kind of like a deconstruction. Because it just a few times it struck me that because Mario blatantly chooses Joe over Linda, so I was just like, what? And but also, I, yeah, the, the the peril and the, the the adrenaline, I suppose. 
I see that as the fact that Joe and oh, Joe and Mario both bonded over the fact that they they're French and they spent time in Paris, and they I think and I think that's where the Nash like I think it's like a a thing about nationalism. I think there's a lot of that in there. And mm. a lot of uh, about colonial rule as well. Yeah, about how like these two French characters kind of yeah, there together. were there was a lot of racism and sexism yeah. in it that also triggered me. Yeah. Um. But yeah, other than that, I you know what is there to say? It's just it's just such a good film. It's a masterpiece. Is is I I got a question then. Out of all the films that I've had you watch, then is this is this the only probably. Masterpiece? Um, probably the one that I hailed because I was thinking that a few episodes ago I said that Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was probably my favorite that you've made me watch. And the, probably the one you said you'd only rewatch, like it's the only one out of the ones you'd rewatch. Yeah, so. I think I would rewatch. I mean, I don't think I've put my, myself through another <laughs> wages of fear because my heart, I don't think, will be able to stand it. But yeah, I mean, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a feel good film. You know, crimes, yeah. murders aside. Whereas this is just a proper, you know, trance film where you just, you know, you're in a trance, you can't move. You have to watch, you have to see what happens. And you're just like, your heart is just pounding out of your chest and you're yeah. sweating and you're like, I need I need to stop watching, but I need, I need to know what happens next. So it's one of those films that I just have very hard I find it very hard to sort of separate from. I'm not. I'm. I'm there. I just live it. Um, and I think if I'd went, if I had seen this in cinema, I thought I would probably have had a heart attack. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, I saw this. I first saw this about four years ago. Um. Because uh, when I was living in Bristol, the one of the cinemas in Bristol was uh, screening uh, William Friedkin's uh, Sorcerer of from 1977, course. which is the remake of... Oh, actually, correction, it's not really a remake. It's more of a... It's it's another ad- adaptation of a book, of the book, because both okay. this film, Sorcerer and Wages of Fear, are both uh, adapted from the French novel La Salaire uh, de la Poire, uh, which means The Salary of Fear, um, by Georges Arnaud uh, that came out in 1950 um, so both the films are both adapted from the book um, Sorcerer was you know obviously people were like oh it's a remake of Rages of Fear and it's kind of become like it's the remake of that French thriller but in actual fact like Freakin's come out and been like no actually it's just a adaptation of the book and takes bits here and there from from the, from the original film um, so the I saw Sorcerer in the cinema um, for the first time, and that was that was an experience. Um, we're going to have to get it onto this podcast because I know you haven't seen it, and I know how much you love Roy Scheider. I um, do love Roy Scheider. So, and I was thinking, you know what happened? Oh my god, you're gonna you're gonna tell me ah. Oh. I'm not, gonna say ha- I'm not going to say no, anything. No, you're just going to be very happy about this. But I was thinking, um, I had images in my head with Voishada doing the jazz with that black shirt. I don't know why. It just popped into my head. I'm like, oh, he's kind of sexy. <laughs> and I hated myself. And I hated myself because I did not like him in that film. 
That was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, what is that? Where did that image come from? Um, <laughs> so back back to back to Wages of Fear. Um, so the film brought Clouseau like it, it. It's the film that made him big. Um, it, if you know, it, it won the Golden Bear and it won the Palme d'Or at the 1953 Berlin Film Festival and Cannes Festival, respectively. And because of the success of The Wages of Fear, enabled him to direct the film that we'll be talking about next. Um, in So, it's kind of really hard to kind of talk about this film without talking about the response to it from people that are probably a lot more, actually are a lot more intellectually intelligent than I am. Um, so, I think like Pauline Kael wrote in 1982 that this is an existential thriller, the most original and shocking French melodrama of the 1950s, when you can be blown up at any moment, only a fool believes that the character determines fate. If this isn't a parable of man's position in the modern world, it's at least an illustration of it. The violence is used to force a vision of human existence. Um, that, I mean, that, that, that quote from Pauline Kale, I mean, I think she's pretty spot on. There are so yes. many, there are so many readings of this film in that it's either about masculinity, it's about colonialism, it's about exist a human existence. Um, it can be that there's a religious reading to it if you really go into it, like the fact that the start of the film these characters are all stuck in purgatory. Purgatory, yeah. There's a, a descent into hell, um, which is something which Sorcerer I think does better than Wages of Fear. Um so yeah the film um was wasn't filmed in south america it's filmed in the south of france um it was originally going to be a nine week shoot but the production ran into numerous problems which led to it being delayed until uh, the release being delayed until the summer 1952 and the budget went over budget by uh, 50 million francs which in the 1950s was a lot of money um <laughs> Um, the film had obviously has a very very negative portrayal of a fictional American oil company, and this can be read as very very anti-American. Um, and this led to the fact that the film, when it came over to the U, went over to the US, it was cut because you can't have anything yes. that's anti-American. Um, and then, it, but it still, it, it it still went on to be extremely successful. You got the remake from Freakin, or the ad- re-adaptation of the book from Freakin, and uh, there were rumours of recently. Um, I think it must have been last year at some point. There was going to be uh, an African set update of the film, featuring an all-female cast from uh, Ben Wheatley, um, mm. which. Be interesting if it ever gets made. Um, if it does, Ben Wheatley seems to have all these projects kind of announced, and he's a bit like Del Toro, and that they're always announced but they never get made. Um, so we'll see what happens. With I wish that. he hadn't made Rebecca. Sorry. <laughs> I wish he hadn't made Rebecca. <laughs> that's a, that's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> but um, I think I think it's quite interesting. The film has this kind of anti-American viewpoint. In that it's also very anti-colonialist as well. Um, it seems to be very anti everything. <laughs> like it's you know, like men suck. <laughs> you know, they do. America sucks. 
um, you know, the the French suck, the the Italians and the Germans, like the fact that uh, Bimbo's history, Bimbo's history, like he speaks about how his his father was hang hung by mm. by the Nazis. Um, you know, and you got Luigi, who you know he's probably the most likable character of the lot, and yet he's he's going to die. And um, if he's yeah, he's got a death sentence on him anyway. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So. I mean, I tell you, well, so I got a bit of background because it's really hard for me to talk about Wages of Fear and not talk about Sorcerer. But the thing with Sorcerer that I I found quite funny is that. The film obviously is it does it follows the same basic narrative thread in that they're using explosives to blow up uh, an oil um, fire to to extinguish it and they have to travel across the South American jungle. Um, the I think the America there's the company in Sorcerer is an American oil company. The film was produced by Paramount in ni- in in 1976-1977. Paramount at the time was owned by Gulf and Western, aka an oil company. So hmm. Gulf and Western pretty much released an anti-oil film almost accidentally because you know the conglomerates at the time in the 70s they didn't really know what they had but they just ended up you know giving out checkbooks for money that kind of thing so um both films are kind of very very anti-american and anti-oil um as they should be yeah as they should be um the cinematography by armand thoreau is utterly amazing um there's this great contrast between light and shadow which really add to the tension um and yeah i i one last thing i i I don't know if you agree but the the more i was thinking about it after watching the film i'm trying to think of films that are like it i think the film is more like john houston's treasure of syria madre um, yeah, it does have. Kind of like... It's kind of coming full circle, doesn't it? Because you've got Treasure of Sierra Madre, you've got Wages of Fear, and then you've got There Will Be Blood. That kind of makes like the capitalist um, uh, sort of greed of mankind yeah. come like holy trinity, unholy trinity. The unholy trinity, the black, the black, it... the black gold trinity. The black gold, yeah. Because uh, it did make me feel like all the oil made me think of there will be blood. There's there's an article written there, so there's a book definitely there, or a chapter of a book to be written about <laughs> Sierra Madre, Wages of Fear, and 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 there will be blood. Um, so yeah, <laughs> either me or Daddy might be writing that. I don't know. <laughs> um, actually, this is really funny because um, hang on, let me find it. There was a um. Netflix posted on Twitter the uh, today um, something under the lines of describe your favorite movie with a fake academic paper title. So I tweeted pipelines, a study of capitalism by analyzing the dynamics between religious fanatics and greedy businessmen. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> That's pretty excellent. So we're going to have to write that thesis. <laughs> You're going to have to write that thesis. Yeah um yeah that's pretty pretty excellent um so i i don't know if you've got anything more to say about wages of fear i don't it's uh, yeah what uh, to quote marlene what else is there to say what else is there to say 
Um, is yeah. masterfully done. I think um, it was Vera Cruzo's first film, I believe. Um, I think she was a stage actress before, and she is, of course, the, the, the wife of Henri um, Georges Cruzo. And I just felt at, one, at times that she was slightly miscast. She felt yeah. like she didn't belong in that world. She was too much of an angel. She looked too angelic. What did what did you think of the ending? So to recap, oh. like to recap, um, Mario makes it to the to the oil field. They blow up the the fire. It gets extinguished, and then he refuses the chauffeur to drive him back to the town. He speeds through the slick oil. This cheering, celebrating. And then this all takes place in like ninety seconds. And then he's At driving. The he's driving in the road, and then he's like turning left and right for whatever reason. And it cuts to to uh, Linda dancing to Blue Danube, uh, Danube, and then she faints. And then he drives off the cliff. Like, how? Do, I mean, for me, that is. I really. I don't like that ending. And you don't like that I, ending. If I wasn't so exhausted by <laughs> watching the film, I would say I thought I it would... was appropriate. Yeah? Yeah, I thought it was appropriate because they were so scared, right, on the way over with the with the cargo, with the really explosive cargo. And when he got rid of that cargo, he he felt like the king of the world. He was the, the king, he could do whatever. So that's that's how you you read it as he feels he's now invincible and he can do whatever he likes. Exactly. Right. See, I, I it read turned... it. I read it in that he 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 went through this journey of surviving death, and yet he can't not go back from that. Like he he he. It's almost as though he deliberately drives off the cliff because he cannot not go back. He can't go back. Basically, like he's you driven down that. this road to hell, but he can't go back to. Yeah, that's how I read it, and that's kind yeah, of yeah. You it could say me. I think that's a good point. You could say that, but you could also say that he's cheated death once, and he thinks he can do it again, but he can't. Yeah. I think the way he the way he was t- taking the curves and the way he was going from one side of the road to the to the next on purpose and laughing and and just feeling like you know God of all creation. It just made me think that he was just like, now I, I can do whatever. I'm invincible. Okay. okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, I was interested to know what you thought about the ending. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was appropriate because, it, again, like you said, there was no there was no turning back. How he could live again with what he went through, seeing yeah. his friends die and whatnot. Okay. I, I have nothing. I have nothing more on on waiting yeah. for fear. Okay, should we uh, move to our next film? Yep. Le Le Diabolique, released in nineteen fifty five. The English title was Diabolique, which in free translation means diabolical. And here is the quick synopsis: The wife and mistress of a loathed school principal plan to murder him with what they believe is the perfect alibi. So, what did you think of Lydia Bolique? So, what what was that quote? Who was that quote from? The one that you said, "What is there? What is there to say?" Who was that from? Malene. 
Right, yeah, so what is there more to say about this film? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to leave it at that, really. Um, Oh, I know, right? (laughs) So, uh, this is 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 kind of like a joint rhetorical, joint hypothetical question. Is this the greatest film that Hitchcock never directed? Probably. Um, Quite possibly. Yeah. uh, I I really honestly don't know. I found the film... I found it's kind of the way it lurches between thriller, drama, and mystery, and horror. It just just really, really gripping. I mean, Wages of Fear is gripping in that, that you are so on edge because of what's happening on screen with this like you're on edge because you don't know what's happening on screen yeah exactly exactly Um, this is a really really intense film that i really would not have worked without the the amazing performances by vera clouseau and uh simone uh um i thought their performances were utterly amazing um the the setup of the film is is really quite conventional really when you think about it it's just about uh, two women that want to kill this bloke and they kind of want to get away with it you know we've seen it in you know episodes of CSI in Miami you know like it's <laughs> a, it's a very very conventional narrative that we see in 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 lots of different forms but the way Clouseau does this in this film is so impact it just hits you so hard and you just end up questioning everything you're seeing and 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 almost questioning whether you yourself are are, are, are going mad Mm. um it's like i said it i think it's i think it is the best i think it probably is the best film that hitchcock never directed um i think the 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 twist that you know he actually turns out to be alive that the headmaster turns out to be alive and that him and the mistress, you know, are doing this the whole time to kill the wife. Spoiler, so they... spoiler alert! Spoilers, <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, so uh, too late now. Yeah, um, yeah. To, you know, they kill kill the wife so that they can then sell the school and then you know die rich. Um, I I don't want to say I I called it. I didn't call it, but there was something up there. I knew there was something up because I didn't think the film was committed to say going down like a supernatural there wasn't a supernatural edge to the film there wasn't like I, I, uh, example um crimson peak del toro's crimson peak there is yes like, yes you know there is a, a supernatural edge to that film obviously because it's a fucking gothic horror and romance it's a film. ghost story <laughs> yeah but it, it uses it uses the it uses the supernatural element really really effectively to, to convey the mystery and to help you solve the mystery and del toro's whole thing is you know the monsters are beautiful and they're just misunderstood we need to listen to the monsters not be as scared of them which is none more um present in in crimson peak with this it's there is no supernatural element to it we are just being left with questions and being left with reactions by by primarily um vera clouseau's uh the wife um what's her name christine and christine you know we, we are mainly we are mainly seeing the events through her eyes and are in turn on edge because of her 
Um, so I, like I said, I don't want to say I, I, I called it, but I just didn't feel as though the supernatural element there, there wasn't any kind of that edge in the film that made yeah, me think. Yeah, there was no other way except for him to be alive. Yeah, there was no other way reason. So, and when you kind of look back on this film in hindsight, there it's so fucking obvious that the mistress, you know, the um, Nicole. She's so in on it because she's so yeah. cold and calculated and just almost too calm about what's going on. Absolutely. Like, why wouldn't you be freaked out that the body you just dumped in the swimming pool has now disappeared? Like, <laughs> why, why wouldn't that freak you out? And I think. Even if you didn't have heart condition, you would. You, literally... would, be, you would be really weirded out by it. Yep. Um, so the, 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 you know, obviously, it 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 became obvious later on. So that that's the that was the twist. That's the yeah. twist. And then there's another twist. Yeah. Which you know, the little boy who uh, who uh, kind of revealed early on that the principal was still alive. He kind of implies that Christine is still alive. And because he said it before, and because we are then... He's not he's then being pro- believed. He's then proven to be correct. Us as the audience are like, hang on a minute. So, yeah. what, like, what's... Yeah. I, I don't get that, because I, what's the fucking point in her still being alive? Like, there is no, there is no, like, the mis- that Nicole and the headmaster have both been arrested... Uh, presumably arrested because the detective who is yeah he was literally like a precursor to fucking Columbo. He, he was, comes... wasn't he? I'm <laughs> glad he picked up on that. <laughs> like he's just a precursor to Columbo. And like I was thinking about that when I rewatched it last night. And you know, he comes along and says, like, Oh you got fifteen to twenty years. And so that they're presumably been arrested and so that's the end of it. That's the end of it. But why why is Christine still alive? Like there, there is no because other she, it just it, it it is implied that she's alive. It's not actually said flat out that she's alive, but it's implied that she might be. She might have been behind the whole operation just to get them out of the way, so she could just leave and pe- live in peace. Oh, uh, see, I didn't get that. <laughs> I didn't get that. Okay, she might have been like you know the brains. She might have yeah. just played. Them for, play them for suckers. I'm gonna say this is probably a film that rewards itself on second viewing. That will reward itself on second viewing because yeah, I could probably yeah. watch it from the start, knowing that that maybe Christina had a part, and I can look out for it and yeah. be like, oh yeah, no, she definitely did. Um, so I think I, you know, obviously looking back on the film, I can't really remember what happened at the start because I was so kind of caught up about what happened in the middle and the end. Um, yeah. Definitely yeah. deserves a second viewing. Yeah, the, the the I think the tension at times it really really does build and build and build, and it really does get quite really unnervy and and I get really quite suspenseful. Um, like you know, if, I think that the re the fact that the film kind of ne- it anchors itself in realism almost with actions going on elsewhere. So the narrative isn't solely focused on Nicole and Christine. It's got other elements to it. So, you know, we see actions of other characters in and around the school. 
yeah. in the village that they the, the 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 two women end up going to where they supposedly you know quotes quotation marks murder the headmaster um so yeah like i th- i i think the film i think the film is is one where i will have to rewatch it at some point with the frame in mind about what i've just seen what i what i know happens so i can kind of unravel the narrative and actually try and figure out the ending whether that's the intent of Clouseau, I don't know. Um, I think Clouseau's intent with Wages of Fear is to go, here is something incredibly suspenseful for two and a half hours. Good luck. Mm. With Diabolic, I... I just... I don't know whether that's in, is he intended for us to rewatch it with trying to unravel the mystery or whether he just kind of wants us to kind of just see this world fall apart if that makes any sense i don't know yeah i i mean as a person who likes to rewatch films of of this nature i think there's there's more to it than meets the eye for the first time is when you rewatch so um, you obviously seen you've now seen it more than once obviously I, how many yeah. times have you seen it i think i've seen it about three times three times do you with the most recent viewing, then were you? Did you uncover something? Yeah. Yes. Can, can I ask what that was? <laughs> no, no, you'd have to watch it. Oh. I can't give it away. Remember the disclaimer at, at the end. Yeah, the disclaimer, which honestly, more films should have. Yes, um, absolutely. Honestly, like, I can't imagine like having not having that disclaimer. Can you imagine that? If you're watching, like, Avengers Endgame, and at the end of Avengers Endgame, where everybody sat through the credits, and they just go, like, please do not spoil this fucking movie for anybody. Uh, <laughs> just don't do it. Someone yeah. did spoil it for me. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, dear. Which bit? Because obviously there's loads of things to spoil. Well, the death of two characters. Two characters? Come on. Who died in in Endgame? Tony and Loki. No, no Loki died in Infinity Natasha. War. Oh, Tasha. Yeah, sorry. I totally forget the Black Widow is a character, which is what I <gasps> do as well. <laughs> Did you just say that? I don't. I, I don't. I don't forget. Like that. Uh, oh. as opposed to a, a marionette or what? No, I just. I just mean like there's. Natasha Romanov in in the Marvel Cinematic Universe thus far has not been the three dimensional character that she should be. I think in if we're talking like comparing her with other uh, female characters in that universe, she is not as three dimensional as say okay. Elizabeth Olsen Scarlet Witch. Okay, um, fine. Which which we're we're gonna get this solo film. Let's at not some point. let's not get into let's not divert. You know. No, no, I, I know, I know. All right, okay, yeah, all right. But I mean, I, I I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try and swing it back around. So like we, we you know we're gonna get this solo film next year, which is gonna hopefully give her the three dimensions and the background that we should have got. You know, five ten years ago, that's gonna flesh out this female character. And I think that what this is going to be really can we get back to the movie? I think what this film does, Diabolic, is it really fleshes out those two female characters extremely well in the short space of time that it's got. There we go. I managed to bring it back round again. 
impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you got any more notes on Diabody? Um, apart from the fact that um, whoever played the headmaster, um, he was an, a, 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 a vile creation. <laughs> um, I, I haven't really hated a, a person more <laughs> since I saw Wage of Fear about two hours previous <laughs> with Joe. So um, I really hated Joe too. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think well, whereas, whereas Michelle Joe, wasn't whereas, much better. Whereas Joe was a coward, like, he was a bully, then turned out to be a coward. Like, Michelle was just a fucking abusive... Scum. <sighs> scumbag that deserved to drown and didn't. He did get arrested at the end, but to be honest, I kind of wanted him to die. Yeah, so... slow, painful death. Yeah, drowning. Cool. So, uh, it's funny that we were talking about the uh, Wages of Fear being based on a book, because this film is also based on a book by a prolific French team of writers, uh, Pierre Boileau and Thomas Narcejac, I think, uh, entitled Celle qui n'était plus. The Woman Who Was No More, released in 1952. Uh, this duo also wrote um, a book called D'Entre les Morts, The Living and the Dead, which was made into... Guess which film? Oh God, I don't know. I don't, you're going to need to give me a clue. You can't just give me a name of I'm a I'm going to give you a clue. Um, what, I mean, you've just mentioned his name. When you talked about Lydia Bodic. Freakin, no, not freakin. That's Toro. Hitchcock. Hitchcock. The Living in the Dead, so. Uh, Psycho? No. That oh. was Robert Block. Oh, it's uh, Living in the Dead. Um, I'm gonna go with Vertigo. Excellent! Oh, what a guess! <laughs> So, speaking of Hitchcock, the story goes that Clouseau beat him for the rights of the book on which Diabolique was made, was based on, by only a, ma a matter of hours. So imagine that. Imagine having, being Hitchcock and like, I want to make this film, I want to buy the rights of the, book, of the novel. And someone was like, eh, too late. Every George Clouseau already bought the rights. So uh, I think he said that he was very impressed with the film. And the the film is considered a favourite amongst many film directors in terms of horror. And uh, sometime, somewhat heralded the arrival of the modern horror film, if you think about it. Yeah, it does. Kind of leaving the idea of the universal monsters behind in favour of something more human-shaped, like Michelle. I think he he played very he played very well by um, Paul uh, Maurice, and this was the second film of uh, Vera Clouseau, and I think like I said she did a really really good job. A massive spoiler alert! Well, you've already spoiled it. We've already so, spoiled the film already. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, um, in real life, Vera also died of a heart attack in 1960, oh. aged only 46. Um, I don't think his her husband had anything to do with it because he was left 
inconsolable for a long time. He loved her very, very much. She only did three films, and all of them were for uh, Alvi Georges Clouseau. So yeah, um, quite a shame. She was she was very good. Simone Signoret was also brilliant as the other woman, although uh, Georges Clouseau felt that she played Nicole as if she kind of knew the ending, and he didn't like that. He complained that he shouldn't have let her read the whole script. And they had a bit of a clash on set. Um, like with Wages of Fear, the production went over of a uh, schedule by quite a few weeks. They were scheduled to uh, shoot for eight weeks and they ended up sh 16. And Simon Signore was um, meant to start rehearsals for a play, The Crucible, in Paris. And she had to do both things at the same time uh, for a while. So she didn't like that. Also, it's stated in her contract that she would, even though the film went over over schedule, um, she was only paid for the eight weeks that were contracted. So it's like, what? You know, working for free? How's yeah. that possible? Anyway, the story is one of the first with a twist ending, which is why there's that disclaimer at the end. One of the first of a kind. And yeah. I loved I loved this film. I saw it um for the first time at the BFI. Um it's not as suspenseful as Wages of Fear, but perhaps more horror inducing at times, particularly the the scene where the night scene at the end where she's kind of roaming the corridors of the of the school and you know you you've got the long shot and then the close up of hands and twisting the uh, doorknobs and quite eerie and then it culminates with with the scene in the bathtub there's a story that uh, after the release of psycho albert hitchcock received an angry letter from a father saying that his daughter refused to have a bath after seeing diabolique and now refused to shower after seeing psycho <laughs> <laughs> and hitchcock sent him a note saying just send her to the dry cleaners oh that's quite funny and I think, yeah, I think you're right to say that this was the best film that Hitchcock never directed because you can see the aesthetical storytelling influence that um, this film had on Psycho. And for a while when I was a kid, I think I believed it that it was Hitchcock who directed it before I actually saw it in the big cinema and realised that it was Henri-Georges Clouseau. Um, so yeah, I'm really, I'm really happy that we got to talk about it. And what what a pair of films, eh? I watched these back to back yesterday, and I just felt like I needed like sedatives to be able to sleep. <laughs> I I was I was sensible enough to space them out. <laughs> um, oh. I I couldn't do one after the other. Um, I did. I was just like, oh my god, my heart cannot take it anymore. Because I, yeah. I I knew thing is I knew what Wages of Fear was like. I so... did not know that. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so. Anyway, um, I think that that's my notes done on um, Lady Abolik. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 I got a I got a side story just because it's in my head now. Um, I know you you said that Hitchcock uh, was beaten to the rights by Clouseau by a matter of hours. Um, it's uh, very much akin to the story of um, James Cameron was beaten to the rights for Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park by Steven mm. Spielberg. Um, so there is a there is an alter there's a parallel universe out there where James Cameron actually directed 
Jurassic Park. Um, who knows what the fuck that film would have been like. Which, do you think it would have been much different? Oh, it would have been so much different. This is James Cameron, for crying out loud. You know, like, he did Aliens. And yeah. Terminator 2. Like, he, okay. he's... I know, like, I know, like, Spielberg has kind of, like, started off in horror um, with Jewel and Jaws. But he kind of went straight away into family, more family friendly yeah. stuff. Whereas he, Cameron yeah. has always been rooted in horror, and even with like, and then he's he went into disaster films with um, he went he did, you know, he did True Lies, and then he did he did Titanic, you know, which is the ultimate disaster movie, and then he he's done you know he, he did Avatar, um, you know, twenty five years ago. Um, and we're still waiting for the uh, 15 sequels. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. No, I, I, I honestly, I do think Jurassic Park by by James Cameron would have been such a different film. Whereas I don't think Diabolique by Hitchcock would have would been have too been... different. No, I don't think it would have been that much different. I, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah, so I mean, managed to get Spielberg in there, so... <laughs> So what what have you got on for next week? It's Spielberg. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I didn't mean to say that <laughs> the way it sounded. I do appreciate Spielberg. Um. Like. So we, we recently we we managed to get the Coen Brothers on the podcast because you know we we there's very few films that either of us haven't seen from the Coen Brothers. Um. You know we did uh, a bonus episode on Mank. We're plugging that bonus episode. Please listen to that bonus episode on Mank. And we got to talk about David Fincher, uh, which is something we probably wouldn't have been able to do uh, normally. Um, and I think with this direct to December trilogy, um, we are getting a chance to talk about Steven Spielberg, who has an insane uh, catalogue of films, filmography. Um, truly astonishing. But it's also like... Because he is Steven Spielberg, there's very few of his films that people haven't, or me and Danny in particular, haven't seen. But we have managed to find two. Um, so we've got... Um, so the film that I have chosen oh, for Danny to I... watch is Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977, starring Richard Dreyfus, uh, Terry Garr, um, Melin- uh, Melinda Dillon... And um, one Francois Truffaut. Ah, might have heard of him. Hmm. Never heard of him. Huh, and... huh, huh. I think the son- <laughs> name rings a bell. It'll come to me. It'll come to me. He's some French bloke. I, I don't know. Um, oh. And then uh, we'll be watching that with the one of the few Spielberg films that I haven't seen, which is The Color Purple from 1985, starring Danny Glover, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Margaret Avery, and Oprah Winfrey, among many, many others. What a great film that is! I'm looking forward to it. Like I said, like there's like you said, I'm really happy few... that you've not seen it because it's probably one of my favorite Spielberg films. Well, like for for a long time, it was like the serious Spielberg films were the ones I hadn't seen. So Amistad is there, Color Purple was there. Um, I haven't seen 1941 or Always because I've heard Always is terrible, and I've heard 1941 is a complete mess of a film um i've not seen those either but for a long time i hadn't seen uh warhorse um you know that came out in 2011 i've not seen warhorse everybody saw warhorse you've not seen that no 
No. Uh, I, mean, I don't know why, it just slipped through the net. Yeah, it's it's one of those, yeah, that's what I mean, like, uh, and the thing is, like, it never grabbed me, like, as in, what I didn't want to see Warhorse like I wanted to see, I don't know, Munich, for example, if we're going by serious Spielberg films. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen, have you seen Munich? I d- yeah. Yeah. Or um, yeah. the film he did a couple of years ago with uh, Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, The Post. I saw um, that in the cinema. Um, I was not blown away. No? I was not, no. It's just, I think what happens when you have actors of, of the calibre of Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, you just, the story doesn't really matter. You just see them act. And you, you kind of get... Did you at least enjoy that, though? I did. Oh, yeah, I did. But it was just like, I, I didn't, I mean, I I like journalistic dramas. I like All the President's Men. Spotlight was in, was so good that I think I watched it about four times in the space of a week. Spotlight blew my yeah, mind. Spot, Spotlight's pretty damn good, yeah. Uh, but the post was just like, eh, okay, yeah, it's good. It's got an amazing cast and it it, it had a, a compelling story to tell, but I don't know if I, somehow it just, Missed, missed out on something I think I think what really kind of struck me about the post is it came out in 2017 was obviously in pre-production long before any of the Trump start you know and long before Trump got elected but then it was released in early 2017 when all that was kicking off so it be- suddenly became a really really prescient film I think yeah. probably the best thing that I the probably the best thing I've ever said about the post even though it's a film I did like, I did like a lot. But the best thing I could probably say about the post is that after I finished watching it in the cinema, I went home and I put on All the President's Men. Yeah, um, yeah. I think I did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did the same thing. That's pretty funny. Because <laughs> it was just one of those things. Like I really need something that will just keep me on on the edge of my seat, and it did not. Yeah. It's, I, th- I think you could probably watch because like they're all set in the same office so you could probably watch Zodiac, The Post and all the President's Men just one after the other and like just spend time in that office um, yeah. which is quite which is quite which is quite cool um, so <laughs> anyway we, we kind of diverged a little bit we're going to end up talking a lot more about Spielberg next week um, we have spoken about Spielberg in the past when we did uh, E.T. Um, of course, somehow he, uh, Danny hadn't seen ET, but we've, we've I rectified have now. that. We rectified um, that, and now we've got Close Encounters. Um, Yay! Which uh, which has an amazing performance by Richard Dreyfus. Um, so that is next week. Like Danny said earlier, um, you can find us on Twitter on Keenatomic or at Keenatomic. Uh, drop us an email on Keenatomic at gmail Danny, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter um, at Kino Joan is my head, uh, my handle, and my website is kinojoan.co.uk. And you can find me on Twitter at Nick S. Chandler, where I am posting random thoughts about uh, animaniacs at the moment. Wow. <laughs> keeping, it, keeping it in the Spielberg thing. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and you can find me on my website superatomavision.com where I've got my Jaws piece up online to keep in line with the Spielberg thing um, so yeah with all that in mind it's a, thank- a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me and a goodbye and a thank you for listening from me